Um, we're going to finish our series today uh, called To Your Advantage from uh, John 16, 7, where Jesus makes it clear to us as a community that actually we're better off that he goes, that he's not singularly physically present in one place on the earth, but actually that he is going to come by Holy Spirit, dwell in us and also fill the earth so that at some point the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. And so we're in this position where we kind of ask ourselves, invariably, it would be so much nicer to have him physically here and stood with us. But the reality as we've looked at over this series from different speakers is that if that were the case, we would probably find that there was a massive crowd about him and we wouldn't get very close at all. Or that we would limit the instructions that he gives us to go and tell, go and share, go live this life and be filled. We'd limit that to being close to him physically and orientating ourselves around him. And so he knows that for the church, it's super important that we get this concept of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the fact that Holy Spirit dwells with us and in us. He dwells within us, plural, as the community, Ephesians 2, that we are being built together as the dwelling place of God. He also dwells within us individually. And he empowers and he enables and he strengthens us as well. We've looked at gifts. We've looked at his encouraging of us. We've looked at that discipleship journey and being forged in the fire. We've looked at what does it mean to have Holy Spirit in us and powerfully at work in us, in our conscience in our mind, in our being, to conform us to the likeness of Christ. Because that is the end game. That God gives his son, that humanity will be recovered, that we might be once again conformed to the likeness of Christ, conformed to that which was lost when we rebelled and we walked away. And so the Holy Spirit present now in this room, in you, day by day, is God at work in us. He is real. He is tangible. He is active. He is a person who can be grieved, who can be rejected. He is God with us. And so we want to give Holy Spirit as much room and access to our lives as possible. And doing that is through reading his word through worshipping of Jesus Christ, through adoration of the Father and living lives in honour and obedience and valuing his presence above everything else. I want to value him in me more than the opportunities that present for self-indulgence and temporary joy when I know that those things would offend him. So I want to value him more than that. I want to pursue, I want to take hold of, I want to have him. And he is so very gracious because he is the father who runs out to the prodigal son and takes hold of us while we're still covered and disheveled in all our muck and mess and ridiculousness of this world. 
He's the one who runs to us and embraces us and cleanses us and covers us in righteousness. He's the one who puts identity back on our finger that we become sons and daughters of the Most High God again, that original desired identity we were to have from the beginning. He's the one who does it all. Now today I want to look at a bit of what Holy Spirit does in us, but also in the world. It's a next step. It's how Holy Spirit engages with the world, both on his own, but also through the church and through our ministry. I want us to have a look at these following verses in John 16, 8 to 11 from the New Living Translation. And it says this, When he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. And then he unpacks that a little bit. And Jesus says, The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. And judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict. He's going to do a work in people. That word convict is a, it's sort of somewhere between reproving and, and kind of letting know that something's not right and absolutely letting you be absolutely assured it's not right. It's somewhere in between. And the reason I say that is because, of course, what we'd love is for the desires of the Father, which is that all come to a saving knowledge of salvation through Jesus, we want that to be the case. We want it to be that when Holy Spirit comes, people are absolutely convicted and they respond. And that's it. And we're like, brilliant, hallelujah. We want to see those revival moments like we've had in Wales and the Hebrides and, and with Jonathan Edwards in the States and, and across Europe. We want to see those revival moments where people just step into the presence of Holy God and they're immediately convicted because he is there. And they're just like, they're completely undone and they're like, woe is me. For I'm in the presence of a holy God. And wow, I know that I cannot survive here unless somebody rescues me, unless somebody covers me. And of course, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel. Somebody has come along and he's covered us from the purity and righteous judgment of God. We are covered by Christ himself. Jesus covers us in his own righteousness so that we can now stand in the presence of almighty, holy God and survive. Whereas else we wouldn't. And so we long for this conviction. We want it to be the case, but sometimes it's not like that. Actual fact, people's response to the convicting, reproving sort of, guys, not everything's right here, something's wrong, takes time. And sometimes, actually, the end result is people reject God completely, going, nah, I don't want a bit of it. I'm not interested. You don't answer my questions. I don't need you. I'm out. And so, when Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict the world, he's going to reprove, he's going to challenge, he's going to make plain what the error is, there still leaves that opportunity for response. 
what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with the message that I can't stand before a holy God on my own, but I need Christ to cover me with his righteousness? What do I do with that? Do I say, no, rubbish, not interested? Or do I take hold of it with both hands and see where he takes me next? On the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands up and he preaches to everybody, filled with the Holy Spirit, here's this Holy Spirit outpouring moment, and he stands up at the beginning as it's recorded in the book of Acts, and he says this to those who are listening. For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this, by outpouring on these disciples and them spilling out onto the streets, proclaiming to everybody the wonder and the glory of who God is. And they're all hearing this in their own different languages from where they come from. And he says, it's this same Jesus you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. And so we get this moment where Holy Spirit is present and active in the community. The disciples are emboldened from being hiding in upper rooms to now being strengthened and empowered. They're like, no, we get it. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll guide us into all truth and he'll bring back to our memory what he taught us. So here we stand proclaiming what Christ has said and what has come about. And so they stand there. And part of the message is the challenge to the hearers in their day. Guys, you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. God has done something. He has resolved the issue. Now you need to repent. You need to change the way you think. You've got a moment, you've got an opportunity. What are you going to do with this? Now, of course, we're not in a day where people were actively involved in the crucifixion of Christ and the rejection of him and the acceptance of Barabbas, the murderer, in his place. We're not in that situation. But there remains in the gospel message the condescension of Christ. There remains in the message of God this coming down this recognition of our need of his purity and holiness. That stays in the gospel. We can't remove it. It's there in the loving embrace of the father when we talk about the prodigal son running home. It's there in the loving embrace because he covers us with his righteousness. He absorbs us in that embrace. There is a recognition in us that things aren't right. But that's the journey home. And as we journey back into God, we find that he is there with open arms, willing and ready to embrace us. So the Holy Spirit convicts us, but he also causes us to be embraced and loved. And so we receive that embrace and that love in the same moment that we're convicted by wrongdoing. It's a beautiful encounter with God. Who's been parented really well? 
all of us kind of struggle with that question, don't we? Because as the writer of Hebrews tells us, you know, don't, don't you know, kind of be upset with your parents, with your fathers and mothers who, who did the best in their discipline of you as they could at that time. But the Father is the one who disciplines us beautifully. And he comes alongside and he's able to bring a conviction or an understanding of where we've gone wrong, but at the same time in a context of love and in a context of acceptance, which says, will you walk into my embrace? Will you recognize what's gone wrong and will you walk into my embrace? And it's at that point that we find the loving forgiveness, mercy of God. So the Holy Spirit convicts us and he convicts the world. Have I gone too far? Concerning righteousness. In Acts 13, we have the disciples proclaiming, listen, we're here to proclaim that through this man Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. You see, the world has got this upside down idea of what everything is about. And actually, Holy Spirit comes into the world to set right our thinking about reality and what it is. And so what we have is God proclaiming, do you know what? Humanity has fallen from the glory of God. You are not as pure and perfect as you might think you are. And despite all the efforts that you might see on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube videos about people proclaiming that they can judge others and make declarations of what is right and what is wrong, you just see an absolute melee of mess and chaos. There is only one who stands who is able to judge over humanity, and that's Jesus. But he is the one who offers redemption and restoration, forgiveness and wholeness, which you'll never find on Twitter and Facebook. Humanity has to look above and outside of itself to find a saviour, not within. We need Jesus. And at Christmas, we recognise that he came purposefully that we can now, through faith in him, have right relationship with God, where previously all our best efforts would never get us there. So the Holy Spirit teaches the world that righteousness cannot be achieved through any means other than being covered by Christ. Don't try and work it up. Don't try and be it yourself. You will find it only in him. Acts 26. They proclaim this. That actually Paul's mission is to go after this one thing. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place amongst God people, God's people who are set apart by faith in me. This is Jesus' instruction to Paul. This is what I want you to get on with. This is what I want you to go after. And do you know what? 
at the cross, Satan was judged and he was found wanting and his rule and reign was brought to an end. What we're fighting now are skirmishes. They are peripheral battles on the sidelines against the enemy who is seeking to delay the victory. But what we have in Christ is victory absolute. He has won. He is victorious. He has judged. And he rules and reigns. All authority on heaven and earth. All of it is mine. That's it. There is no other authority. All of it is mine. And so the work of the church, the work on our lives, is to live and walk in the kingdom of light, no longer in the kingdom of darkness. But it is to bring the kingdom to bear in multiple contexts. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. When you see the work of Jesus on the earth, what he's doing is he's correcting the wrongs that have been created on people through the kingdom of darkness. Sickness, death, disease, breakdown in relationships, physical, emotional and sexual abuse. All of those things are being undone by Jesus throughout his ministry as indicators as to what his kingdom does when it comes. And so we get to now partake in that. We get to see with Holy Spirit power that work expressed through us in the world. And so the church is now positioned to answer that call. May heaven come to earth. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. We're the dwelling place of God. You carry the Holy Spirit. And so where God says you set your feet, where the church proclaims authority, where we seek to step out in faith, we see his rule and reign extended. And so we want to be pursuant of him and his rule and reign in the lives of our neighbours and our friends and our family and our work colleagues. Sometimes that is an encounter, an arresting moment like Paul on the road to Damascus. Sometimes it's a, whoa, I just, I realise, I hear you, I sense his spirit. And other times it's a wrestling and it's a work that takes time and we endure and we persevere and we lovingly chase after people and we seek to co-labor with God in the bringing of life in its fullness. The Holy Spirit in us is seeking to birth the kingdom through us and he wants us to believe that he is powerful, that Christ is risen, that he does rule and he does reign and thereby as we proclaim, as we love, as we gather up the broken and the hurting, he will do a work that only he can do. He will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment and he will see his judgment worked out on the enemy again and again and again. And the enemy is not people. The enemy is the work of Satan and the kingdom of darkness in their lives and about them. And so we proclaim 
and we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done. Break through here and here and here. So as a gathered community in prayer, we are powerful and effective. And we seek the outworking of the very thing Jesus taught us to pray on the earth. We are to co-labor as a church with the Spirit. Just want to take you through a very brief journey of an individual through the comments they made as they walked into understanding who Jesus is. Some of you might recognize the author. This is the first quote. That the man Yeshua or Jesus did actually exist. Yeah, I agree with you. It's as certain as that that Buddha actually exists. Tacitus mentions his execution in the annals. But all the other tomfoolery about virgin birth, magic healing, apparitions and so forth is on exactly the same footing as any other mythology. This is what they wrote in 1916. In a following letter to Arthur, their friend, they say this, strange as it may appear, I'm quite content to live without believing in a bogey who is prepared to torture me forever and ever if I should fail in coming up to an almost impossible ideal. As to the immortality of the soul, though it's a fascinating thing for daydreaming, I neither believe nor disbelieve. I simply don't know anything at all. There's no evidence either way. As this individual starts pursuing and wrestling with the ideas and concepts in Christianity. They get to a point where they have to declare more and more the elements of truth and the old beliefs, even their dreadful side, are becoming more and more reasonable and clear. In 1929, some of you might be guessing who this is by now. In 1930, sorry, I'm not flicking that on, am I? In 1930, in spite of all my recent changes of view, I'm still inclined to think that you can only get what you call Christ out of the Gospels by picking and choosing and slurring over a great deal. This heart continues to wrestle. Terrible things are happening to me. The spirit or the real eye is showing an alarming tendency to become more or much more personal and is taking the offensive and behaving just like God. Truth is starting to affect the heart of this individual. They're moving from objection to an internal wrestling with the Holy Spirit that someone needs to give way. Who is it that's going to give way to who? I can't express the change better than by saying that whereas once I would have said, shall I adopt Christianity, I now wait to see whether it will adopt me. I now know there is no other party in the affair, that I'm playing poker, not patience as I once supposed. It's this sense that as people wrestle with the concept of God, they move from a position of personal analysis, like playing patience on your own with a deck of cards, 
and working it out as you go and, well, I'm going to solve this. I've got the answers. I'm in control. To sudden realization, I'm not the only one at work here. Someone else is in the game. And I didn't see it at the start, but now I'm starting to recognize that there's someone else who's in this game. And I'm not sure whether I'm included or whether I'm going to win. And so around 1930, he proclaims that he has probably become the most reluctant convert in England. And of course, some of you will know, this is C.S. Lewis, who wrestled with the likes of Tolkien, T.S. Eliot, Arthur C. Clarke and others at, un at the top universities in the country. A great mind. And the reality is, in today's world, the gospel is as powerful and effective as it ever has been, even for the greatest of minds. I don't know if you've been able to observe some of the journey that Jordan Peterson's been on as a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology and his exploration around the peripheries of Christianity and his seeking to understand what is this singular universal truth that resonates in the heart of man, in the minds of all people, and yet can only be answered in one place. And he is like a planet circling the sun, feeling its pull, and yet maintaining its orbit and trying to get some light in the darkness. The work of the Holy Spirit is a work that only he can do in the hearts of men and women. He convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's the one who gathers the soul in and does the work in each and every one of us. We're called to share the Father's love, to proclaim his kindness, to proclaim his mercy in the year of favour, to express the goodness and the loving kindness of God to all that we encounter through our works our deeds and our words. And at the right time, as you deem appropriate by the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to provoke with truth from his word and by the Holy Spirit to open somebody up to another layer of truth. Let's pray together. Father God, I ask that you do a work in us by your spirit, that you convict us of the power of your gospel, the truth of Christ come, lived, crucified, resurrected and reigning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint our words as we speak with those around us, as we express loving kindness, as we show mercy, as we show love, as we proclaim truth in love, that those who hear it I pray, would be soft, fertile soil and they would receive your word of life and it would produce life in them. Lord God, we seek your face to be in a season of great harvest. We seek your face to direct us to the fields that are white unto harvest. Direct our feet to those that are ready to receive your word cause our lives to overflow with loving kindness 
but also the truth of your gospel for the glory of Jesus. Amen.